Hey, good morning, everybody. Happy Sunday. Happy Sunday. Welcome to the Vineyard. Uh, Glad you guys are here. If you want to this morning, why don't you open up your Bibles to John chapter 2. We're going to look at a piece of scripture that I just love this morning. Title of today's message is Water to Wine. Every day, all day long. But before we get to that, I want to I want to start by just um, I want to start by saying this. Um, especially as somebody that most of you all know, who enjoys wine and is a semi amateur, semi professional wine drinker, wine. Maker, I would like to start by saying this: that fermentation is a really strange thing. I don't know if you've considered it or not, or thought anything about it, or maybe you've maybe maybe you've read something about it at some point. But fermentation is the is the strangest thing because because you start with you start with juice, you start with some kind of juice, something that's good. You start with something good. You start with something that's delicious something that like little kids enjoy with their like their little lunchables you you start with something like that and then if for some reason you were to add a bit of yeast or if for some reason some wild yeast that's just naturally floating around in the air which by the way they're everywhere uh, were to come into contact with that delicious juice that really good stuff the kids the stuff that your kids would love and if you give it a little bit of yeast and if you give it a little bit of time Something completely transformative happens to that juice, okay? Uh, That juice goes from being innocuous and uninteresting, and it becomes potent, and it becomes captivating. This is one of the things that I find most interesting about wine. You You could take some juice that's really uninteresting and unmemorable, but if you add yeast and a little bit of time to it, it becomes something that's packing a punch and that you will remember. Um, how many of you have, have lasting impressions in your mind of a cup of apple juice? Like, do you, do you remember a cup of apple, apple juice that you had back in the mid-80s? No. However, if you spend any time drinking wine at all, you will, at some point, in your life, because of fermentation, encounter something that leaves a lasting impression on you. It goes from innocuous, uninteresting, to potent, captivating, and memorable. Isn't that weird? All it needs a little bit of yeast, a little bit of time, something called fermentation. Something that's sugary can become heady. Something that was momentary becomes preserved. Now, this is where I really like it. Grape juice won't last, but wine will. And in fact, in fact, while we're thinking it through, it's interesting to me that juice left on its own will invariably, quite naturally, without any help from any human being, turn in this direction. No, not the stuff you buy at Kroger. That stuff has been... God only knows what they do to that stuff, right? I, I, don't, I mean, I... I understand the concepts of pasteurization, but like we really don't know what's going on there. All I know is the stuff at Kroger doesn't count. But if you were to get some juice, like some actual juice from actual 
plants from actual fruit and you were to squeeze that stuff, if you did nothing, if you just left it in a container, if you went on vacation, when you came back, that wouldn't be juice anymore. Quite apart from you, it goes through this transformative process while it sits on your kitchen counter. Even more interesting to me is this idea. What this means, this fact that juice could go from juice to being wine, something temporary to something internal, means that God intends for everything that has been squeezed out, everything that is sweet, and everything that has been crushed by the pain and processes of life, He intends for those to be touched by the yeast of His kingdom and held for eternity. He's telling this story, right? It's amazing. Like, you don't have to do anything. It just happens. And then finally, fermentation takes that which is neutral, that which is neutered, and that which is safe, and it makes it intoxicating. Now, as soon as I start talking about intoxication, people get nervous, especially in church. But because it becomes intoxication, intoxicating, what that means is this. It means that fermentation adds the smile. That might be another way to say it. Fermentation adds the smile. Fermentation adds the laughter. Fermentation adds the dancing. And fermentation adds the danger. Like, no one ever got up and danced a jig because they had a glass of apple juice. Never. Never. No one's face broke out and smiled because they had a little cup of grape juice. There's something about that fermentation that adds the joy. Now, hopefully at this point you realize that we're not just talking about wine, but we're beginning to talk about God's kingdom in some kind of way. We're not just talking about God's kingdom either, but we're also talking about, we're talking about the work of Jesus. This is the work of Jesus. He is the great heavenly vintner. He is the great heavenly winemaker. And what I want to talk to you about this morning is, I want to talk to you about living a fermented life. That might be one way to say it. I want to talk to you about living a fermented life. What is a fermented life? A fermented life is the smiling, the laughing, the on the edge of danger, preserved, eternally held kind of life. In other words, I want to talk to you about living a kingdom life. And we probably should read the scripture. Here's the scripture. You guys know this story, but it's good to read it. Come into contact with it again. John chapter 2, starting in verse 1. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus was also invited to the wedding with his disciples. And when the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. See, there's just tons of stuff here, and we can't even get into it, but everybody's family has some of this in it. Like, some, some moms are really upset that their kids have their own ideas. Look, if Jesus and his mother had interactions like this, what do you think? You think you're going to raise your kids for 18 years and not have some of this? Get out of my face. Then verse 5, his mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. You should probably underline that. That's like a life verse. If you, only, if you don't have a life verse here this morning, if you're not a super Christian yet, you don't have one, I would suggest John chapter 2, verse 5. Do whatever he tells you. Verse 6. 
Now, there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification. They would, like, wash themselves, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. I, I like to say 30. And Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. And when the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine at first. And when people have drunk freely, translation, when people are a little tipsy, then the poor wine. But you've kept the good wine until now. This is the first of his signs. Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory. The first manifestation of Jesus' glory is that he makes wine for people who've had too much to drink. 180 gallons. And his disciples believed in him. This was the on-ramp for his disciples believing in him. Compare that with your conversion story. Right? I love that idea. By the way, if you are uncomfortable now, you're going to get profoundly more uncomfortable before this is over. A couple things right up front. We'll just keep this passage up here, probably for the rest of the morning. Let's just keep it up. A couple things right up front. Um, Not a single word in this passage is wasted. This is dense stuff. Like you can't really even understand the gospel of John unless you get your brain around John chapter 2. Everything in 1 led up to 2. Everything after 2 is some, kind, some way hinged on this. So you got to get this, okay? Not a word is wasted. Really profound passage. Um, secondly here, John is beginning to give us signals here about who Jesus is and what this moment is and the work that Jesus came to do. And he does it right at the beginning of this chapter. It's one little phrase, and you can read over it so quick that you don't even notice it. Look at what it says in chapter 2, verse 1. On the third day. We'll just stop there. You should underline that. On the third day. What does that sound like? What does that sound like? Yes, resurrection. What's the point? John is beginning to tell us John is beginning to tell us right up here, right at the front, that this is a resurrection story. Maybe you've never read this story this way, but this is a resurrection story. Water to wine is a resurrection story. Not only that, but this is who Jesus is. Jesus is the guy who raises dead things and brings them back to life. This is the story that Jesus is most famous for. Not just this account, but being the person who was dead and now come to life. And John's hinting at us right at the very beginning. On the third day, this is the resurrection story. And so you might be saying, well, I don't see how this is a resurrection story. There's nothing dead in this story. Oh yeah, there is. Yeah, there is. There's, a, there, there's something really, really important that's dead in this story, or, or, or at least is nearly dead. What's nearly dead in this story? It's not a trick question. The party. The party is nearly dead. The party is nearly dead. They're out of wine. Now, maybe that's not a big deal to you. But this would have been, this would have been a really big deal for these people at the wedding feast. Weddings 
are still a big deal here, even in our own culture. But it, it would have been a little bit different here because weddings at this moment in time would have meant that you essentially invited everyone from the village over. And how many of you know that you don't invite everybody over, over for a party and then not provide for their good time, right? Like, can you imagine inviting people over to your house and being like, when they show up, being like, hey, really glad you came to my party. Uh, did, you, did you bring any food for us? It would be shameful, right? That's, there's, there's some shame attached to that. Like, if you, don't have the, if you don't have what it takes to provide for the people who are coming to your party, you don't have what it takes to throw the party, right? It would have been shameful. So to run out of wine brings shame back onto the bride and the groom and their family. And right there, right there in the middle of death, right there in the middle of this disaster, we find Jesus. By the way, that's where he's always at. He's, he's always in the middle of some kind of dying. Anybody in the room walking in the valley of the shadow? Anybody in the room walking through the middle of something that's dying? Well, if you're walking through the valley of the shadow, you can cheer up. The psalmist says, I will fear no evil. Why? Because he is with me. He's a, Jesus is always right in the middle of something that's dying. Even in disaster, if you look around, you'll find Jesus. You'll find Jesus if he's been invited. This is the second thing I want to get to here. It's a resurrection story. The party's dying because they ran out of wine. But look at verse 2. It says that Jesus was also invited to the wedding with his disciples. This is really, really important. You will find Jesus right in the middle of the disaster, especially if he's been invited. Now, you and I, we already know the story. We know what's about to happen here. Jesus is going to do a miracle. But we, we shouldn't get too far ahead of ourselves. Um, one of the things that's most important for you and I, if we're going to live a fermented kind of life, if we're going to live a water-to-wine kind of life, one of the things that's most important is to have the good sense to invite Jesus into your life. I mean, this is, this is, why, the, this is why, for instance, uh, Christians, we, just, we invite Jesus. Like, we know that he's already here. Like, theologically, God is everywhere all the time, right? But why do we invite him here? Because it's, it's that uh, invitations... There's an intentionality that sits behind an invitation. Uh, and so if you're going to live a fermented life, it means you have to begin to give Jesus access. You have to begin to invite him in. And uh, by the way, extending an invitation to Jesus is more than just, more than just sending word. It, it's to make, room, to make room in your life for him. It's giving a place to Jesus within your limited existence. Now, here's the thing. Everybody in the room is a limited being. It's part of what it means to be a person or a human you're you're limited there are there are limits to your reason there are limits to your physical strength there are limits to your days there are limits to what you can get done you have limits if you want to live a fermented water to wine sort of life you need to you need to invite the unlimited one into those spaces and if you're going to invite jesus into those spaces it means that he's going to displace some things it means that something will have to move in order to make room for jesus have the good sense to invite him in. What's really awesome here, and we see it quite plainly, is that Jesus gets invited and he comes. 
This is wonderful news. Anytime Jesus gets invited, he, he will come. He will come. If you go through the Gospels, in fact, you might want to take some time this week. Jesus is oftentimes getting invited to people's homes or into people's terrible situations. And every single time in the Gospels, he goes. He never not goes. He, 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 never, he, never, he never says, I'm too busy. Ever, ever, ever. You and I, if we want to live a fermented life, need to have the good sense to invite Jesus in. With the confidence and knowing that every single time that Jesus is invited, he shows up. That's how God's kingdom works. Jesus is invited to a wedding in this story. And right here, right up front, John is also giving us more signals. These are kingdom signals. This should make us think of the last wedding, the marriage supper of the Lamb. This is a miniature picture of that last great day. And so we might ask ourselves, what is God's kingdom like? Well, it's like a giant party. What is God's kingdom like? I know you've heard other things about God's kingdom. I know that you thought heaven was one thing or another. And I know that you think when Jesus shows up that it's going to be one thing or this thing. But the picture that we ought to have in our mind most is that whenever God comes, whenever his rule and reign is most fully expressed in any location, it's mostly a party. So that might make us ask the question, well, what is God like? If his kingdom is a party, what is God like? Here's what God's like. He's the sort of person who loves a good party. This flies in the face of most of our definitions and understandings of who God is. We assume that God is the worried parent who's trying to keep their 18-year-old kid from partying. That's mostly what we think he is. We think that God is mostly the, the, the angry dad who's awake at 3 in the morning catching his sons climbing back through the window and grounding them. Not exactly. What kind of person is God? He's the sort who likes the party. And we see it plainly in Jesus. And the danger that we see here is that the party that he was invited to is about to quite literally die. And Jesus, read for that, God is the one who remedies the situation. How many of you would have ever expected that when a party was about to die, that God would be the one who kicks it back up a notch? See, Jesus is for parties. Now, when I start talking about the fact that Jesus is for parties, this makes the religious very nervous. This makes the religious very nervous because straight away people begin to have all kinds of emotions surrounding that and and questions. And and one of the questions that people have are are things like this. Well, well, what if things get out of hand? Like, Jesus is for parties, great. But what if things get out of hand? Like, Like, what if someone gets a little too loose or... What if someone dances a little too crazy or with the wrong person? What if somebody gets drunk? Oh, no. Now, let's just make this clear. Is Jesus for drunkenness? Is Jesus for debauchery? Of course not. Of course not. But this kind of worry up front, this kind of worry up front, 
this kind of worry about what sort of dangerous things might take place, this kind of concern of making sure that the fun simmers instead of boils might be the biggest sin of all. Why? Because you can't remove all the danger and keep the party. You can't remove the danger and keep the party. You can't keep festive without the potential for excess. It's a huge problem. You guys have been to those parties that had no potential for danger and, and no chance of excess. You guys have been to those? <clears throat> They're terrible, aren't they? The worst wedding wedding receptions I've ever been to are all the ones that have no potential for danger and no chance of excess. The point here is not that that's what we're going for, but without that atmosphere, there'll be no party. Here's something even more troubling. Even more troubling is the fact that a good portion of God's nature is seen in excess. There are certain aspects of who God is that can only be seen, understood, and grabbed hold of in in excess. You say, how? Well, how about this? Our universe right now, we don't really know anything about our universe. We know maybe one-tenth of one-tenth of one-tenth of one percent. But our universe right now is filled with billions times billions times billions times billions of stars. Like if you look up into the night sky right now, you're seeing light from stars that are maybe a hundred million years away, light years. Like you're looking at light that's maybe millions, hundreds of millions, perhaps billions of years old because it took it that long to get here. Does that make sense? The universe is filled with billions times billions times billion stars. And to, to the extent that we understand anything about our universe and have any idea about what exists out there, we're the only life. Now, there might be other life, but we haven't been able to find even one single shred or trace of it. Now, you, let me ask you this question. What kind of God creates life on one little blue planet? And fills the universe with billions times billions times billions times billions of stars who isn't into excess. What's the point? Not only that, let's just bring it maybe a bit more local to our own planet. There are plants and animals right now that exist that still have not been seen, studied, or cataloged. New species are being found Every single day. Did you know that? There are things swimming in the bottom of the ocean that we haven't even looked at yet. There are things creeping and crawling in the Amazon rainforest that we still don't know about. It's potential that there's things living on land on the earth with six billion people that no human has ever seen. Isn't that crazy? Now, you let me ask you the question. What kind of God is into this sort of a setup? The answer is an excessive one. Let's maybe make it even more local. What about the fact that there's so many people? There's nearly, there's 6 billion, and here in just a few short years, there's going to be 7 billion people alive on our planet. All different, all with their own 
stories, all with their own families and histories and all with their own preferences and likes and dislikes. And that's only about half of the people who's ever been alive in the history of this particular planet. So many people, God is, he is in some ways into many, much, and abundance, like over the top and overflowing. And so, so one of the things that I've come to believe is that when you find, when you find many and, and when you find much and when you find abundance, you will invariably find God. Even here, the text says that Jesus made somewhere between 150 and 180 gallons of wine for people who had already had too much to drink. It's an impossible amount. No one, no party, no town could drink that, especially after they've had too much. No one could. See, the fermented life is the one that is coming into contact with the abundance of God. What does it mean to, to live a water-to-wine fermented life? It means you come, into the con- you come into contact with the abundance of God. And this doesn't mean just that you're coming into contact with abundance. Some people have abundance, but they don't have the abundance of God. Those are two totally different things. This, this may or may not have anything to do with bank accounts or uh, land that you own or what you have. The, the abundance of God is a peculiar and it's a different thing. But the fermented life is coming into contact with the excess and the abundance and the overflow of who God is. And I love what Jesus does here. I love what Jesus does here. He is like, he is a winemaker at another level. He's not taking juice and making it into wine. He's taking water and turning it into wine. And that's impossible. Why? Because water has no sugar. And that's a key ingredient. See, Jesus takes what is common what is essential and what is sustaining, and he transforms it into something frivolous, excessive, and intoxicating. See, there's something about God's kingdom which exists in this area. This, of course, is very offensive to some people. Uh, A lot of us, maybe even in this room, would rather not have a silly kingdom. But that misses the point altogether as well. The reason it misses the point is this. It misses the point because the work of Jesus... And the manifestation of God's kingdom, it comes so radically and it comes so completely and it comes so thoroughly that it fills up every need to the brim so that the only remaining things are those which are celebratory in nature, overflowing things more than we need things. How many of you understand that if you're worried about food and shelter, you'll never concern yourself with reading and math? This is a picture of God's kingdom. If you're on a desert island and you're fighting for your life, if every single day is build a shelter, find enough water to drink, and find enough food to live, you will never concern yourself with reading or math. Let me ask you another question. How many of you understand that if you're worried about reading and math, you'll never give yourself to art and music? See, God's kingdom is a singing, and it's a dancing, and it's a laughing, and it's an artistic, and it's an excessive, and it's a frivolous kingdom because he has completely and totally taken care of every single need. See, we're, see here's the deal. This is, let me just put this out there. See, we're stewing about sin, and Jesus is making wine. Think about that for a second. Like, we're worried about sin. Jesus is making too much wine. What's the point? He's already moved on to making wine because he has completely 
taken care of all of that he is not worried. Like we're worried about stuff he is not worried about. We're stewing on sin. Jesus is making wine. We're worried about what we lack and the containers are running over. Most Christians I meet are mostly worried about sin. That is not a fermented life. You cannot be worried about sin and live a fermented life. He has completely and thoroughly, totally, 100% taken care of every need. And by the way, God's kingdom is not a celebration at the expense of what was needed. See, this is, God's kingdom is never a celebration at the expense of what was needed. This is the main difference between human frivolousness and foolishness and God's accurate celebration. Oftentimes, people will have a celebration, throw a party, get hammered, dance with the wrong people, all as an escape and an avoidance tactic to short-circuit the kind of responsibility that takes that it takes to live it, the good kind of life. God's kingdom is not an end-around. God's kingdom is a fill-it-all-up. Everything that needed to be done actually gets done, and it's the overflow, it's the excessive and abundant... It's not an end-around. It's, it's everything that needed to be done gets done. Uh, God's kingdom is... It's a harvest celebration at the end of a, of a hard year's work. It's, it's the, it, like, here's the deal. If, if you grow grapes and you prune grapes and you train them and you tuck them and you pick them and you press them and you ferment them and you barrel them and you age them and you bottle them and then you cork them and you put a label on it, that only a fool would not throw a big party and drink that stuff. But it would be an even bigger fool who owned a vineyard and drank wine and never did that stuff so that you could come back to having a bottle full again. God's kingdom is not an avoidance. God's kingdom is, he has done every single thing. It is not celebration at the expense of what was needed. And by the way, this is the unique work of Jesus. His is the fermented work. His is the wine work. And in order to live a fermented kind of life, you have to be connected to Jesus. You cannot live this life and be connected to anyone other than Jesus. You can't keep your options open. The only person who, who can do this for you is Jesus. Read all the books you want. Uh, get into all the philosophy you want. Uh, read, read every other great religion around the world. Uh, go talk to every smart person you know. Uh, get, get four PhDs and three master's degrees. You still won't live the fermented life. You have to come into contact with the Son of God. He's the vintner. He, he's the one who takes what is normal and makes it amazing. He's the one who takes what's common and makes it a party. He's the one who takes stuff that's essential and makes it celebratory. You have to live with Jesus. I want to show you here, even in the Gospel of John, how this is the unique work of Jesus. In John chapter 1, you can turn there or not. It doesn't matter. I'm going to read it to you. John chapter 1 talks a lot about, talks a lot about, 
John the Baptist. And I want to read you just a few verses. This is verse 25 through 28. Now they asked him, they were asking John the Baptist, why are you baptizing? No, right away, what kind of work is baptizing? It's water work, isn't it? John, John the gospel writer is doing a little compare and contrast in a really subtle way for us here. So they asked him, John, why are you baptizing if neither the Christ nor Elijah nor the prophet? And John answered them, I baptize with water. John's work is a what? It's a water work. But among you stands one that you do not know, even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany across the Jordan where John was baptizing with water. Then further down, then further down, the next day, he, John, saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me because he, before me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness. I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. Now, I've read all of those because I wanted to make this point. John's work was a water work, but Jesus' work is a wine work. And in John chapter 2, we see that we are moving away from water and into wine. Jesus comes and he takes John's work and he builds on it and he makes it something brand new and amazing. And you might be thinking, well, what's the connection point? Well, one of the connection points is right here in the story in John chapter 2. Jesus says, go fill the water pots. And, and they make note, special note that there were six stone water pots. And six, through the number, all through the scripture, is the number of man. And so in chapter 1, John was submersing men in water for forgiveness. But in chapter 2, Jesus is transforming these filled men not just with water, but he's transforming that water into forgiveness and intoxicating wine. This is an amazing picture for us. Jesus is the vintner. See, the fermented life is not just the forgiven life. Lots of people who are forgiven never get fermented. Like lots of people, lots of people think that the point was to just be forgiven. The point is not just to be forgiven. The point was not just to have your sins forgiven. The point was not just not going to hell. Like... This is not the point. The point was that you would come and meet Jesus. Like the point wasn't that you would have your sins forgiven. That's like the first little tiny thing that happens so that you can come in and meet the heavenly winemaker and come into his house in his celebration. The point is not to sit in the courtyard forgiven. The point is to come inside and party with the main guy. Forgiveness is never the point. It's important and not the point. The fermented life is not just the forgiven life. It's the Holy Spirit life. And it's the celebration life. Now this kind of life, this field life, this celebration life, the resurrection from the dead life, more than what you need life, the best for last life, it goes deeper than what we might expect. And there's hints of it here again in this passage. We we see it like this. There's this party going on. It's a party that's on the verge 
of dying. And Jesus rescues it. And most people don't even know that anything was in jeopardy. See, most people here didn't know that anything was in jeopardy. Who knew what was in jeopardy? Well, the master of the celebration knew. Some of the servants knew. Jesus' mother somehow found out. And then Jesus found out. Most people who were there that night probably didn't know that they had run out of wine. Which is to say that so much of the good stuff is hidden. Nobody in the story stands and gives Jesus an ovation. No one even thanks him. See, some of us get bummed out when we don't get thanked. Some of us get bummed out when we follow the Lord or take up some kingdom work and no one notices. I have good news for you this morning. When you are not noticed and when you are not even thanked, you should rejoice because you've entered the hilarity of God's party. See, we imagine greatness on stages and we imagine greatness holding microphones and getting Simon Cowell to speak up on our behalf. But the abundant, overflowing, fermented life is most often hidden. It's most often hidden to the very people that it benefits. All of these people were drinking and having a great time. Somebody in the back realized that they were on the last bottle of wine and Jesus pulls a rabbit out of their hat. They keep on with the party. They don't even know what's happened. No one thanks Jesus. No one stands up. No one gives that guy a toast. If you're not thanked and if you're not noticed, praise the Lord, you just entered the hilarity of God's kingdom party. Not only that, but if you read the passage closely, one of the things you'll notice is that not only does Jesus not get the public credit, but it actually goes to the bridegroom. And who's the bridegroom? Jesus. It's crazy. Look at verse 9. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Hey, everybody saves the good stuff. What, what is going on? Everyone pours the good stuff up front, but you've saved it till last. And the bridegroom's going, Yes, I did. <laughs> There's a couple things here. Number one, this passage is profoundly eschatological in time, sum it up. Profoundly. Wedding feast and a bridegroom and the bridegroom is going to get the credit. Like right now, people are not giving credit to Jesus. Later on in the end of the age and the eschaton, everyone's going to give Jesus the credit. Everyone's going to, everyone's going to say, you saved the best to last. I don't know how you did this, but everyone's going to say that. Everyone's going to say that. But for here, in this moment, here in this moment, I'm touched by the fact that Jesus doesn't get the public credit, that it actually goes to someone else. And Jesus doesn't even care. He doesn't care because he's so sure of his own standing. Jesus is so humble and gentle. The fermented water to wine life is is the humble, 
humble life. It's, the, it's not the upfront, rock it out, impress Simon Cowell life. That is not it. It is the humble, humble life. Jesus is such a, he's a, he's such a shoulder shrugger. He's such a shoulder shrugger that he's totally cool if somebody else gets the credit. Have you ever met somebody who, di- who, who didn't care about getting credit? If you've ever met someone who didn't care if someone else got the credit of their own work, then you met a person who has somehow gone from water to wine. They're at another level. They've been transformed. But I do want you to notice, while most people don't know what happened, that some people in the story are keyed in on the, on the secret. Some people do know what's happened. Some people know exactly what's happened. Look at verse 7. Jesus says to the servants, fill the water jar. The people who know most intimately The reality of what's happening are the servants. Servants see miracles. See, we think rock stars see miracles. We think that people who read their Bibles every single day see miracles. We think that people who pray the most see miracles. We think that people who are the most religious and who do the most backflips for Jesus see miracles. Inaccurate. The people who see miracles are the ones who are the servants. That's who see miracles. The servants see miracles because the servants get the backstory. Servants always know the secrets. And if you watch some stilted English drama, you know that it's always the servants who know the dirt. <laughs> always the servants. See, we, we dream of living in a way where we do the telling. And we dream of being the boss. And we dream of having servants. But it's those who are willing to do what Jesus says that see his glory revealed. And the key to this passage is what we kind of hinted at up front. Verse 5, his mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Do whatever he says. Oh, vineyard, vineyard. Gosh, my heart is that we would be these people. My heart is that we would be a whole community of people who would, who would take their direction from Jesus, that we would labor at his word, that we would listen and that we would obey. And so the questions, the questions are always, 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 what is Jesus saying? Always, what is Jesus saying? And what is Jesus doing? That bracelet, WWJD, it's garbage. What would Jesus do? That's garbage. That's a pointless question. The, the point is not what would Jesus do. The point is what is he doing? What, would, what is he saying? What did Jesus say? No, what is, what is Jesus saying? Have you heard? Do we listen? And do we follow through? See, this is the path of life in God's kingdom. It's the path of life for those who are not offended and who are willing to serve. If you're not offended and you're willing to serve, God will kneel down and call you friend. If you're not offended and you're willing to serve, if you're willing to get no credit, if you're willing to let someone else get the glory, God will kneel down in front of other people and call you his friend. John chapter 13. And for those he calls his friends, he will make sons. And he will make daughters. No one, no one, no one 
gets to sidestep servanthood. I know sometimes I even had a really strange conversation with this guy. He thought he was so spiritual and he was trying to tell me that servanthood was this or that and he didn't really have to do that or this anymore because he was a son. It's interesting. I was like, I don't know where you grew up, but bro, at my house, it was the sons and daughters who worked the hardest. (laughs) But in God's kingdom, if you're not offended and and you're willing to serve, God will kneel down in front of other people and he will call you his friend. And then one day, he won't just call you his friend. He'll call you his own son and his own daughter. This is the kingdom progression. It's sonship. And it's daughterhood, but it starts as servanthood. And servants always know his secrets. They always know the stuff that no one else knows. There's this party going on. They don't have a clue what's going on. They just know that the best wine showed up and there's lots of it. The servants know. They know that it was Jesus. They saw his glory. They saw, they saw him do something impossible. And they see Jesus over in the corner just shrugging his shoulders. Listen to Jesus. Listen to Jesus. What's he saying? Don't worry about being seen or heard. And don't worry about being known or powerful or honored or thanked or recognized or significant or blessed. Just listen and serve. Just listen and serve. Don't worry about that stuff. Because if we do, Jesus says we will see his glory. His glory. What's his glory? The revealing of his magnificent goodness, the power of his presence, and the beauty of his face. That's for servants. That's the fermented life. That's the water to wine life. For people who are not offended, people who don't have to be known, who could be hidden, who are okay with being overlooked and not thanked. That's the hilarity of God's kind of party. Like you, you kind of have to be drunk to be okay with that, right? You, you kind of have to be buzzing on something to be okay with that. See, his spirit can make you like that. That's why we need to drink deep of his spirit. It will intoxicate you with his love to the point that you stop caring about the stuff you used to care about. That's, this is one of the profound pictures that's being told by Jesus. Everybody, everybody knows once somebody gets six or seven beers in, they become a different person. Right? Well, we don't need to be six or seven beers in. We need, to be, we need to drink deep of his goodness, his spirit. The capital S spirits. Capital S. There's something even better. Hey, I love wine. There's something better than wine. Um, Song of Solomon says, your love is better than wine. That's what it says. That's what the scripture says. There's something better than wine. By the way, you'd have to drink wine to even be able to confirm or deny that. I'm just saying. <laughs> but there is something better. There's something better. And he's, he's asking us to come into that. Amen? Amen. Amen. Why don't you stand up? I want to pray. I've preached entirely too long. Good Lord. Good Lord. Lord, you're wonderful. You are just really wonderful, Lord. You are totally and entirely, profoundly, hilariously wonderful. Heady stuff, Lord. Heady stuff. Lord Jesus, God, would you give us, would you give us another drink of your goodness? 
Another drink of your goodness, Lord. We want to consume. We want to imbibe. We want to feast. We want to drink deep. We want to drink deep. See, it's not an accident that on Acts chapter 2, that the people who were most filled with the Holy Spirit, everyone else thought they were drunk. God's goodness is so intoxicating. God, we ask for the intoxication of your spirit to come into our life. Like the crazy, profound, deep, deep knowledge that we are loved. The crazy, profound, deep, deep, wonderful goodness and glory of Jesus. God, we want to just... We want to drink deep of that. Come, Holy Spirit. Come, Holy Spirit. Would you rest on us? Would you rest on us? Jesus, we ask you for the joy. God, we ask you for the dance. God, we ask you for the hilarity. The fruit of the Spirit is love and joy. God, we ask for the fruit of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit, joy, is actually a fermented fruit. We ask for that, God. Would you bring that into our life? while we've been praying here and just sort of resting in this moment anybody here just become aware of the presence of the Holy Spirit like in a light hearted sort of way anybody yeah awesome why don't, why don't we do this why don't we just pray for some of these people this will be our ministry time this morning uh, anybody who's just sort of feeling the presence of the Lord like in a light and bubbly sort of way why don't you just put your hand up for us not to embarrass anyone yeah. All right. Why don't some people who know how to pray for people gather around these people and let's just, and here's the prayer. Lord, would you, would you more of that? It's a real simple prayer. Lord, more. Okay. Some people who know how to pray. Come on, let's pray for these people. There is no ministry team. You are the church. You are the ministry team. Just do that. Even if you don't know how to pray for people, just get somebody who had their hand up and go more Lord. In the name of Jesus. Amen. Give somebody a high five and a hug. Find somebody to pray for. Amen. See ya.